following is based on a true story. Around 7 p.m. at the Boston Logan Airport on September 11, 2001, a black Chevrolet SUV arrived at the main arrivals terminal on one Harborside Drive. On any other day, the scene would have been a near calamity. Cars arriving, honking their horns, loved ones picking up their relatives on the last arriving flights of the day. But when the black SUV arrived, it was a paranormal scene. Earlier that day, four planes had been hijacked and crashed into major U.S. landmarks on the east coast of the United States, with one failing to reach its target. The plot, carried out by Middle Eastern terrorist organization Al-Qaeda, hoped to decapitate the U.S. government and terrorize the public in one fell swoop. However, despite its horrific violence and the casualties it left behind, it left society licking its wounds, fearful of another strike or paranoid that more Al-Qaeda agents were in the United States determined to strike again. The Boston Logan Airport was the site where two of the four hijacked airliners had departed from, both of which found their targets in the World Trade Centers in New York City. Two men in black pants with white shirts and a black heavy coat were leaping out of the black SUV at the terminal. On the back of the coat were large yellow stenciled letters that read, FBI. There was nobody at the airport. The distant drone of sirens crisscrossed the Boston area, and litter was bouncing around in the calm wind. The sounds of jet engines roaring were absent as empty planes filled the tarmac gate area. The cloudless sky revealed a gorgeous starry night as the agents were directed to enter the airport by a nearby security guard. These two FBI agents were called from the local Chelsea, Massachusetts field office to examine a checked bag left behind. The black roller bag had not been loaded onto its flight, American Airlines Flight 11. The first plane hijacked and crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m. This was typical policy of American Airlines, who routinely refused bags making very tight connections from gates far from the departing location. However, this bag was far from the ordinary. The bag belonged to Mohammed Atta, the believed ringleader and hijacker pilot on American Airlines Flight 11. The FBI agents entered the small dark room outside the arrival terminal baggage claim. They turned on the lights and donned white latex gloves, preparing to examine the bag on the stone-cold metal table. They unzipped the bag and were initially unamused at its contents. Dress clothes, underwear, a pocket copy of the Quran, a belt, and shoes. But stacked neatly under a stack of socks was something far more sinister. A handwritten, multi-page letter. Along with this letter were DVDs containing cockpit training manuals for large commercial airliners. The eyes on the agents widened. The letter eerily read, Strike like heroes who are determined not to return to this world. Glorify Allah, because this cry will strike terror in the hearts of the infidels. Strike above the necks. Strike all mortals. Afterwards, Allah willing, there will be a rendezvous in the highest paradise with the mercy of Allah. I am your host, Nick Delahaye, and this is the Human Factor Podcast. Today we will cover the intriguing personal stories of three of the four pilot hijackers on September 11th and how they went from seemingly ordinary people to the most infamous mass murders in the 21st century, from their times as children to the last moments of their lives. This is the Faces of Infamy unmasking the 9-11 hijackers. The excerpt I have just shared with you is not a passage from a crime thriller novel. It is a glimpse into the sinister world of Al-Qaeda, and its plans leading up to the fateful day of September 11th, 2001. Imagine this, an Al-Qaeda operative, believed to be Abdulaziz Alamari, armed with a document titled The Last Night, lays out specific instructions for the hijackers who would board the four planes that would become the instruments of destruction. This letter was a roadmap to terror, a mission that would shatter American innocence and plunge the United States into years of endless wars in the Middle East. But what's most intriguing and terrifying is a mix of religious zeal and ideological extremism that fueled these terrorists. The hijackers were instructed to shave extra body hair and to pray constantly, believing their actions were to be rewarded in the afterlife. And here's the twist. Suicide and the killing of others are strictly forbidden in the Quran. What twisted interpretation allowed for this horrific act? It is only a small part of Al-Qaeda's philosophy which manipulated Quranic principles to recruit and launch worldwide terrorist attacks. Looking back to the night of September 11th, the FBI agents also recovered the last will and testament of Muhammad Atta, dated April 11th, 1996. This bone-chilling document outlines plans for worship and a funeral service that forbade the presence of any woman, 
especially pregnant women, who were deemed unclean. Ada's extremely radical beliefs pinned him as a ringleader, further solidifying his connection to Al-Qaeda. As investigators looked at Ada's Florida driver's license photo, they saw the image of a seemingly ordinary man with olive skin and a clean-shaven face, but something was chilling in his eyes, a darkness that held the secrets of unimaginable terror. But Ada did not act alone. The other two pilot hijackers, Marwan al-Shehi and Ziad Jarrah, hid behind double lives, projecting a facade of normalcy while harboring the sinister minds of terrorists. These three men would cross paths in a tragically fateful way, becoming the architects of the most brutal terrorist attack the world has ever witnessed. Imagine a chilling tale where evil doesn't announce itself with thunder and lightning, but lurks in the mundane corners of everyday life. The Hamburg cell members of Atta, al-Shehi, and Jarrah weren't the ominous figures we often associate with malevolence. Instead, they were ordinary individuals leading seemingly unremarkable lives. What makes their story truly spine-tingling is a stark contrast between their eerily normal existence and the nightmarish path they eventually chose. It's a reminder that the most unsettling darkness can emerge from the shadows of the familiar. Stay with me as I delve deep into the lives and minds of these individuals exploring the events that led to the infamous 9-11 attacks and the consequences that still shape our world today. It's a journey that will shock and enlighten us, reminding us of the importance of history's darkest personalities and periods to prevent repetition. Chapter 1. Meeting the Hamburg Cell Mohammed Alamir Awad al-Sayed Atta was born just north of Cairo, Egypt, in 1968 to a solid, middle-class family. His real name was much longer, but he went simply by his father's name, Amir. His father, Muhammad al-Amir Sr., was a distinguished lawyer in the area, educated in Sharia law and civil law. Amir's mother, Buthaina, was just as well-off, coming from a wealthy family of farmers and traders. They married via an arranged marriage when Buthaina was only 14. This was, and still is, customary in Egyptian culture. Buthaina bore three children, Amir and two older sisters, Aza and Mona. Aza became a botany professor and Mona became a cardiologist. Amir would have big shoes to fill. Muhammad al-Amir Sr. was a rigorous father to the young Amir. He enforced strict rules in the household. He would even time Amir's morning walk to school, prohibiting him from walking with his friends. The harsh disciplinarian of Muhammad al-Amir Sr. greatly prioritized academic success amongst his daughters, but primarily his son. He frequently bickered with his wife, Uthaina, about spoiling the young Amir, who supposedly would sit on her lap up until his college days. If he was not at school, he insisted on Amir studying alone in his room. The only thing remotely close to a playtime Amir would get was when he would stick his head out of his top floor window and talk to kids in adjacent buildings. It was like he was in prison. Here's an excerpt from an interview with a distant friend of Amir. I never saw him playing. We did not like him very much, and I think he wanted to play with the rest of the boys. But his family and I, and I think his father, wanted him to always perform in school in an excellent way. Muhammad al-Amir Sr. even once told Amir, I need to hear the word doctor in front of your name. Outside of the strict lifestyle that Muhammad al-Amir Sr. enforced, the Atta family enjoyed happy times. Pictures exist online today from the publicly available family photo album many showing family trips to excellent restaurants or weekend excursions to the beach on Egypt's north coast, Amir smiling by a tree or sharing tender moments with his sisters. Nothing indicative of the brutal terrorist he would become. Some noticeable things in Egypt likely influenced Amir's life. Members of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad slew Egyptian President Anwar Sadat during a military parade in October 1981. The Egyptian government in the years leading up had carried out an agonizing campaign to crack down on radical Islamist organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood, you might have heard of recently of having given birth to the Palestinian fundamentalist organization Hamas. Despite this, it would have been impossible for Amir and his family to ignore the disillusionment that faced Egypt. Amir Sr. stated that, without explanation, Amir began praying when he was 13, which was right around the time of the assassination. There was still something to appreciate about Egypt and Amir's adolescence, its rich culture. Amir grew up in what can only be defined as Middle East's breadbasket, the Nile River Delta. Picture this. A donkey-drawn cart rolls by in the early morning, bountiful with dates and fruit. The sounds of a han echo throughout the loudspeakers, the signal of the hour of prayer. The sweet smell of sugar fills the air by noon, 
and the steam rolling off tea kettles accentuates it all. Flies congregate around the date man's cart as he hastily tries to shoo them away. The flies eventually hope to find food in open windows. There are no open windows or a crack in a door at the auto household. A neighbor recalls, not even the flies enter there. Not even the flies. With his reclusive lifestyle and strict enforcement of academics from his father, Amir easily excelled in school, completing high school with very high marks. He would excel on a national test and enroll in the prestigious Cairo University, majoring in engineering with a focus on architecture, eventually earning a degree. Cairo University was, and still is, a behemoth compared to the universities of the United States. At the time of Amir's enrollment, its undergraduate program was roughly 155,000 students and had 7,000 teachers to accompany it. The university was so large then that students had to drive from class to class. Cairo University also organized its classes by name. Amir was paired with people who shared his first name, Muhammad. The name Amir would have to stick. Also in the massive university was the aforementioned Muslim Brotherhood. This didn't really matter to Amir. He was not fervently religious in any way. Neither was he political, as his father warned him growing up that politics equals hypocrisy. Joining the Muslim Brotherhood did not interest Amir. He wanted to focus on his studies, but the loud voices of the Brotherhood would have been hard to ignore. Amir completed Cairo University with very high marks, but it did not set him apart from others. Most students who attended the university were outstanding high school students, and their academic success continued. Amir's engineering and architecture degree did not make him stand out. Many students followed his field. The job market was too competitive right out of university. His father advised him that he could only stand a chance at getting a high-paying job in Egypt if he went abroad to continue his studies in Europe or elsewhere, primarily in the West. But Amir did not want to leave Egypt. He felt comfortable in the breadbasket. It all changed one evening, though, for Amir. His father met some teachers from Hamburg, Germany. Hoping to get Amir to change his mind about leaving Egypt, his father invited the teachers over for dinner. Amir would be the show star at this dinner. He took German language classes in high school and college and was fluent in German. The teachers helped persuade Amir that he would be an outstanding student in Germany. Three weeks later, now 24 years old in 1992, Amir left for Germany to enroll at the Technical University of Hamburg. If there's one person who would be the exact opposite of Amir, it would have to have been the second would-be hijacker pilot and prospective marine engineering student, Marwan al-Shehi. He was born in Ras al-Khaimah in the northeasterly United Arab Emirates on the Persian Gulf Coast in 1978. When one thinks of the UAE, one's mind might instantly flash to the glitzing glamour and luxury and wealth. Although the small federal monarchy discovered liquid gold of oil in 1958, the Shehi's small rustic and rural village of Ras al-Khaimah never got any of the money from its discovery. The town then was arguably home to more goats than actual people. The goats grazed whatever vegetation was present, feeding off desert trees and plants. Today, the village is much more like a city than a goat oasis. It has taken up a much more stereotypical Emirati city look, with skyscrapers and all-inclusive resorts for foreigners and wealthy Emirati business moguls to enjoy weekends. But for Marwan, the resort came in the form of Islam. And food. Marwan was a son of a muezzin at the local mosque, the man who would make the prayer calls. Marwan was a devout Muslim almost as soon as he was old enough to practice. When he was old enough, Marwan would make the prayer call himself when his father could not. Marwan, unlike Amir, never possessed any sort of academic ambition. He joined the UAE Army right out of high school. After training, the Army awarded him and other recruits with scholarships to Bonn, Germany, and arrived there in the spring of 1996. He was never successful academically in any way, shape, or form. His father died a year later, though, and he requested a leave, but the army denied it. He left anyway, failing his courses due to absence. He returned, though, but barely passed. The other army recruits in Bonn seemed to enjoy a way out of the taboos of Islam, dating women and drinking alcohol. Marwan, though, was resolute in this practice. He refused to go to any restaurant that served alcohol, a distinguishment that left him and his friends with little to choose from other than a backstreet Turkish-German fast food joint as Marwan slowly dissociated himself from his now westernized UAE friends. He became far stricter in his practices. After his father died, he even refused to go into a McDonald's restaurant because he believed they used pork fat to make their french fries. He believed a woman's sole purpose was to be a marriage partner, never talk to them unless he had to. 
Marwin developed a fun side when he abruptly moved to Hamburg in 1998. A Muslim friend, Shahid Nichols, referred to Marwin as radiating a sense of calmness, but always being in a good mood and having a sense of humor. He loved food, too, maybe a little too much. He would always be the last to finish at the table, supposedly rolling rice between his fingers into little balls, humming jihadi chants as he chewed. He also loved candy, carrying around a little baggie of chocolates and candy, which he shared with everyone. The early life of the third pilot, hijacker Zia Jarrah, is precisely the last person one would expect to become a terrorist. Ziad lived a life utterly different from Amir Marwan. He was born in 1975 to a wealthy family in Beirut, Lebanon, in the Becca Valley, a land luscious in fruit and known for its wine. One could see it as an almost microcosmic version of Italy. He does not fit the profile of many radical Islamic terrorists. Desperate poverty, the only way out, is turning to a life of violence in the hope of maintaining some sort of stability. Ziad never lived a life of need or fear. It was always want for him. He would get exactly what he wanted. He performed well academically. He even drank alcohol and had several girlfriends and knew where all the best clubs were. To his family and others, he was never political or religious. His family sent him to a Christian school, and they were not devout Muslims in any way, shape, or form. They believed that education was far more important than religion. Ziad did have a dream, though to become an airplane engineer. Like Amir Marwan, he would get his shot at this by studying abroad in Germany. In 1996, he left Lebanon for Greifswald, Germany to enroll at the University of Applied Sciences. He would get another girlfriend there, a Turkish woman named Isil Sengun. After a year at the University of Applied Sciences, he moved to Hamburg to enroll in their University of Applied Sciences. Amir, Marwan, and Ziad are all in and around Hamburg, Germany by 1996. It is here that life for them all begins to change noticeably. Amir arrived in Hamburg in the summer of 1992 with only one bag. He lived with the two teachers in an entirely rent-free cottage. One of the first things he asked for was the location of the nearest mosque. He would begin frequenting his local mosque every day. He also began adhering to a strict Islamic diet. No pork, no alcohol. He refrained from any kind of pleasure that regular students did in the inherently unrepressive Hamburg prostitution, alcohol, theaters, democracy, unveiled women, etc. This was a huge culture shock for the increasingly devout Muslim and Amir. Amir also abruptly quit his architectural studies, hoping to earn a master's in urban planning at the Technical University in Hamburg. His time in the teacher's cottage was also about to stop abruptly. He would complain when their daughter would come over. By the spring of 1993, he had moved into a new apartment across town, but his living situation was about to get far worse. He would move into university housing called Centrum House. Each bedroom was simple, a bed, desk, and some shelves. The kitchen was the same. Amir spent most of his time in his room, only leaving for classes or to go to the local mosque. He left his room completely featureless, consisting primarily of just a Quran. When he could not make it to the mosque, he would pray in his room or the corner of the classroom. He always wore the same clothes, slacks and sweaters. He would never wear shoes in the apartment exchanging whatever he had on for blue flip-flops. He never did his share of cleaning to the distaste of his roommates. He would use their cutlery and plates and not clean them. When he would eat, he would buy a sack of potatoes. He would peel, boil, and then mash them into potato mountain that he would put on a platter, jamming a fork into it. He would put it back in the refrigerator when he was done, where it would rot for ages, affecting the taste of his roommates' leftovers. He would do it all again, over and over. He would also never clean the shared bathroom. His demeanor was also rude. He was so high-strung and reluctant to all pleasure that his roommates sometimes joked that he was in his room about to blow himself up. His roommates, though, tried to get along with him. They took him to the 1994 film The Jungle Book, which he hated. He hated it so much, in fact, that he became agitated in his seat, mumbling the words chaos under his breath. When they returned to the apartment, he stormed into his room and shut the door. That was the end of his roommate's attempts to befriend him. Amir was also extremely rude to women. At one point, toward the end of his studies, he was set to receive praise from his professor and a female co-worker about his studies in Islamic site conservation and urban planning. He refused to shake the woman's hand, although unhesitant to shake his male professor's hand. Amir's behavior highly put off the girlfriend of one of his roommates. It was a good day when Mohammed wasn't home, she said. She tried to get even with him by plastering large photos of obscene cartoon characters on the wall. Amir ignored these provocations. 
Amir did not share any interests with his largely Aryan Christian classmates. He never laughed or smiled. He was, as one put it, reluctant to all pleasure. Your only shot at becoming friends with him was if you were Muslim, or from Cairo, or were interested in urban planning. At the Technical University of Hamburg Harburg, there were only about a hundred international students, but Amir soon met some other disillusioned and reclusive Muslims, Marwan al Shehi and Ziad Jarrah. They all had one thing in common. They were Muslims in a distant foreign land, looking for friends who had something remotely familiar in one another. The mosque in the primarily industrial area near the university are Persian. There was one Arab one, Al-Quds. With its off-white walls and Quranic verses stenciled in green, Terry McDermott states in his book The Perfect Soldiers that it preached a harsh, uncompromisingly fundamentalist and resoundingly militant version of Sunni Islam. It is tightly nestled between a gym and a Turkish coffee shop on Steindam Street, near Ta. Amir learned some new harsh language at this mosque with a very unique and radical Quranic interpretation. He met a frequent speaker there named Muhammad Haidar Samar. Zamar was an extremely devout Muslim and even a bit of a buffoon. One time, when he was encouraging the mosque-goers to give up living in the West and go fight for Islam abroad, he tried showing off some close-quarters hand combat, attempting some sort of judo kick. He fell flat on his face. In Islam, there are two unique interpretations of jihad. While some believe it to be an internal struggle to rid oneself of temptations from the devil, Zamar believed it to be a holy war to rid the world of non-believers. He preached this exact language at Al-Quds. Zamar also admired Osama bin Laden and read to Amir and others his anti-Semitic speeches and writings. Zamar would have to relax on his calls for Islamic militancy as the local German police began tapping his phone, suspicious of illegal activity. Nothing ever came of it, though. As far as the Germans were concerned, the spying and repression performed by the Nazis in the 1930 and 40s would be the last German government to do so, so they took a very passive stance on surveillance and crime at this time. After all, there was nothing legal about telling Muslims to go and fight abroad. Amir also became highly anti-Semitic. He was easily riled up by the Gulf War and especially the Oslo Accords, which were then the peace agreements for a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine. He also believed that Monica Lewinsky was an Israel Mossad agent, sent to convince U.S. President Bill Clinton against aiding the Palestinians. His beliefs in some sort of Jewish-led worldwide conspiracy manifested themselves in just about every facet of his life. Once, he went to the bathroom to relieve himself, and he made a lot of noise. His friend Shahid Nichols laughed and poked fun at him for it, but Amir blamed the Jews for having built the two-thin bathroom door. His beliefs took over his life. One time, when Amir was asked why he never smiled or laughed, he answered, How can you laugh when people are dying in Palestine? At Al-Quds, Amir, Marwan, and Ziad crossed paths and soon began spending time together. They would strictly talk about their beliefs and engage in discourse about the meaning of Quranic verses. They did allow a few others into the group, Zachariah Esabar and Ramzi bin al-Shib. Ramzi bin al-Shib, aka Omar, would go on to be known as the 20th hijacker on 9-11, as he was never able to get an entry visa into the United States. He would become the financial intermediary of the plot much later. After writing his last will and testament, Amir went on a pilgrimage to Mecca in 1996. Muslims are expected to go on Hajj at least once, which is normal. Oddly enough, however, shortly after winter break in 1997, he went again, this time for three months, far longer than Hajj requires. This is inherently unusual. What makes this extremely suspicious is that he also claimed a lost passport. This was, according to journalist Terry McDermott, a typical tactic that terrorist wannabes used to erase travel history to Afghanistan. Amir likely went to Al-Qaeda camps to train to become a terrorist, a holy warrior. When Amir returned to Germany in the spring of 1998, he was supposedly more aloof than ever. Allegedly, his Muslim friends held a party for him, not something people would do when he comes back from Hajj. He joined Omar, Marwan, and Ziad for paid labor in a computer shop in Wolfsburg for money. The collective individuals, who outsiders believed to be Islamic philosophers, began to consolidate into a group, the Hamburg Cell. The Hamburg Cell, Amir, Marwan, Ziad, Omar, Nichols, and others moved into a red brick affordable housing project in the Hamburg neighbor of Wilhelmsburg. Wilhelmsburg is on an island on the Elbe River, isolated from the rest of Hamburg. It was so remote that locals called it the Forgotten Island. If you want to vanish from society, a place of that nature is the exact place a group like the Hamburg Cell needed to be. The group was hardly ever seen outside and became almost feral. They kept their blinds shut day and night. They also had no furniture, but slept on mattresses positioned in the corners of the rooms. No phone, lights, television, 
nothing. According to the downstairs neighbor, Helga Link, the only sign of life would be the sound of talking and footsteps. Marwan was a welcomed addition to the Hamburg cell. His easygoing and clumsy attitude gave the cell the personality it needed. Marwan would tell Arab fairy tales late into the night and march around and sing jihadi chants during the day. The only thing that mattered to the group was his fervent belief in radical Islam. Amir, the most radical in his beliefs, emerged as a moral authority and leader of the cell. He criticized and expelled members of the group he deemed too soft in their beliefs. He held an Islamic study group and garnered many followers, but most were dismissed for a lack of sternness. He tried his best to keep everything organized, almost narcissistic and obsessive in any way. On many occasions, when a departure from normalcy was made in any manner around Amir, he would bite his lower lip in agitation. I find this rather ironic because when Amir goes to the United States and takes his pictures for his driver's license photo, he is biting his lower lip in agitation in all the photos. I find that pretty interesting. Amir tried his best to enforce Sharia-like rules amongst the group. Amir would grimace at the sight of unveiled women. This was best seen once after he and some friends left Al-Quds one night to return to their flat. They had to catch a train, which was conveniently right down Steindam, but a small red light district of prostitutes lay in the way. Amir decided to walk down a different street, but his friends refused to join, saying he should just cover his eyes if he didn't like it. Amir remained insistent, taking the detour himself. While he was gone, his friends mocked his seriousness. But if one person stayed by Amir's side but was habitually different, it was Ramzi bin al-Shib, aka Omar. Omar was a Yemeni immigrant who lied his way into staying in Germany and had been a devout Muslim since childhood. He had a far brighter personality to the outside world than others. One could see him as a spokesperson for the cell. He even smiled at women, something Amir would not like. One time, during Ramadan, as customary, the cell went to break their fast with other Muslims. Amir tried to hurry his host to their displeasure in preparation for the Thanksgiving-like feast. Omar would do all the apologizing for his sternness. Omar, sort of like Marwan, was particularly romantic about Islam and the idea of jihad, which, to the cell, was strictly an interpretation of Islamic militancy. He frequently marveled about the Afghan Mujahideen, the ragtag group of Islamic militiamen who took up arms with the support of the United States against the Soviet invaders during the 1980s. Omar once said, It is the highest thing to do, to die for the jihad. The Mujahideen die peacefully. They die with a smile on their lips. Their dead bodies are soft, while the bodies of the killed infidels are stiff. This was precisely the kind of thing that Osama bin Laden and his terrorist group, Al-Qaeda, advertised. It is merely an interpretation of the Quran, the belief that those who die for Islam will be forgiven all their sins and rewarded in the afterlife, known as paradise, which in Christendom is considered heaven. Paradise is filled with pleasures such as huaris, beautiful virgin women with gorgeous eyes. It also has wine. No matter how drunk you get, you will not be hung over when you awaken. One could also interpret it as Adam and Eve before their expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Nonetheless, Bin Laden took great creative liberties with Islam and its afterlife. The parable of beautiful death or weird coincidences among the Afghan Mujahideen was one such thing that Bin Laden echoed frequently. He told stories of doves coming from nowhere and shielding the fighters from falling Soviet bombs. He used the idea of martyrdom in Islam to attract followers to bring them their lives and money to fight for Islam. He bent it so that if you die for his cause while bringing him your money, you can skip purgatory altogether and go straight to paradise. It sounds very enticing. This is not unusual in history though. It has been abused many times. You might be familiar with the Catholic Church doing something in the Middle Ages called indulgences, where you would pay the church for them to reduce your time in purgatory. Likewise, it is an interpretation. This controversial and strictly an interpretation of holy text. But you get the idea. Bin Laden's terrorist cause for the adoption of Sharia law in non-believer lands, the expulsion of American troops to the Middle East since 1991, American support for Israel, and much more needed some serious help. Al-Qaeda was never a massive group like many believed. It had maybe 1,000 members at its largest. Bin Laden, after financing and organizing the Mujahideen during the Soviet incursion, longed once again for a continuation of this fighting. Al-Qaeda carried out several terrorist attacks throughout the Middle East in the hope of some sort of Western response, but it never came. He needed to get harsher. The stoic 6'5 Islamic terrorist and pseudo-logician put out his famous call to arms to jihadis abroad in February 1998, the February Fatwa. It was the second but loudest as it called for the murder of Americans and Jews anywhere. Amir and the cell members had heard this battle horn, and it coincided with their belief that the Americans were the future enemies after defeating the Jews. Amir, as previously mentioned, 
went almost immediately to the terrorist camps after bin Laden's February fatwa. Omar Marwan went to Afghanistan later in 1998, after bin Laden carried out the brutal bombings of American embassies in Nairobi, Kenya and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. There was no sign of any transaction on Marwan's credit card from September 3, 1999 to December 1999. Ziad would also go soon. The training for jihad had begun. Chapter 2. Marienstrasse 54 After Amir, Omar, and Marwan returned from their training, the Hamburg cell relocated again in winter of 1999. Still remote, they blended into a small immigrant neighborhood near the Technical University on Marienstrasse. Apartment 54, which they would call the House of the Followers, would be a significant upgrade from Wilhelmsburg. It had a full kitchen, fresh paint, and three bedrooms. Everything a family would need. But this was no family. These were now aspiring terrorists. 29 different radical Islamists would call the flat home. They furnished their new apartment like the last, mattresses and such, with some unique decorations and some individualism. Omar even had a bookshelf, but it was primarily stacked with cassettes of radical imam speeches rather than books aside from the Quran. Their beliefs became more and more radical by the day. When Amir went to the grocery store, he asked his friend, Are you ready to fight for your faith? His friend said, Not yet. The brothers die in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and you say no, Amir said. The men also began to grow beards. Marwen, the beard expert, argued with others about the length, saying there should be at least a couple of inches exposed below a fist clenched around it. They also talked about fighting for jihad, likely in Bosnia or Chechnya. They frequently declared that despite doing this, the real enemies were the Jews and then the Americans. The U.S. is not almighty, Amir once said. Amir, the once scholastic phenom, had abandoned his studies, but suddenly, he took them up again. His advisor on his thesis about preserving Islamic sites in Aleppo, Syria, Ditmar Makula, was surprised. He had not seen Amir in quite a while. Where have you been, Mohammed? There's trouble? Problems in the family? Makula said. Yes, and the family at home. Please understand. I don't want to talk about this, Amir responded. Amir once again began studying, reclusive as ever, to finish his thesis. Amir was tying up loose ends. He defended his thesis, but it seemed unclear what he wanted to do with his life. His devotion to Islam continued to grow. He turned in his 152-page thesis around the spring of 1999. It had a dedication to the Islamic God of Allah on the first page. Amir visited Makula in his office to thank him, but Makula was talking to a student. Amir waited patiently outside with a soulless look on his face. Amir left. It was the last time Makula would ever see him. It was like Amir was saying goodbye to his old life. He wrote a letter to his only non-Muslim friend, a German named Volker Hoff. It read, Hello Volker. Heh, you unfaithful tomato. Do you still know me? I am Mohammed Al-Amir. I finished my studies finally. I will leave Germany soon. Here is stuff that belongs to you and something else I want to send you. I wish you all the best in your life. I am sure we will see each other again. So, till then. Muhammad Al-Amir, August 31st, 1999. Other members of the Hamburg group began saying their formal and informal goodbyes as well. Some executed powers of attorney and assigned control of finances to loved ones or friends. It's like they were rushing to get things done, to go fight for the jihad. Ziad Jarrah, though, was doing quite the opposite. He seemed conflicted over his commitment to jihad and Islam. He married his longtime girlfriend, Isu Sengun, informally at a mosque. Ziad moved to Hamburg from Greifswald, Germany, away from his girlfriend. He saw less and less of her. Their relationship was on and off. They would fight, make up, and do it all over again in weeks, even days. Isol was a German-Turkish Muslim and, like the pre-radicalized Ziad, drank alcohol and smoked cigarettes. He would often say he was ashamed of her. In the early stages of their relationship, he never seemed to care about it. But as the years passed and Ziad surrounded himself with Al-Quds followers and cell members, he grew frequently obsessed with jihad and Islam, and disapproved of her non-Islamic ways of life. He even insisted that ISIL wear the veil once. He talked about the Palestinian Intifada. ISIL even aborted a baby they were supposed to have out of fear that Ziad would die for jihad, and the baby would grow up fatherless. ISIL's suspicions were correct, though. Supposedly, Ziad hit her once because he was ashamed of her. He once threatened one of her roommates, saying, Today I am sitting here with you, and tomorrow I will kill you. Ziad also wrote a note to himself with similar language. The morning will come. The victors will come. We swear to beat you. The earth will shake beneath your feet. I came to you with men who love the death 
just as you love life. The Mujahideen give their money for their weapons, food, and journeys to win and die for Allah's cause. But the unhappy ones will be killed. Oh, the smell of paradise is rising. Amir then visited his family for the final time in late 1999. His mother's health was in decline from diabetes. He was having second thoughts about his commitment to jihad. Almost a perfect excuse would be he had to go home and take care of his mother. He wanted to stay in Cairo, continue his studies, and care for her. But his father disapproved. He only seemed to care if Amir had his doctorate. He insisted that Amir go to the United States for this, conveniently. He would be there very soon. In October 1999, the cell members of Ziad, Omar, Amir, and Marwin made their arrangements to travel to Afghanistan. They would travel separately to avoid suspicion. Marwan withdrew $7,000 from his bank account to pay for plane tickets and granted power of attorney to a friend. He canceled his lease on the apartment. He had gone back to the UAE to marry a woman. He said he would be returning once more to the UAE and would not be coming back to Germany. They all traveled separately from Hamburg to Istanbul on Turkish Airlines, then connected to Karachi, Pakistan. They connected once more, likely to Keta. They were told to report to the local Al-Qaeda field office. Chapter 3. Motivations and Preparations After visiting the Al-Qaeda field office and being smuggled into the camps for training, Amir, Marwan, and Ziad were singled out. They were summoned to the House of Gamdi, a facility near Bin Laden's home in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Bin Laden spoke to them himself. He noticed qualities amongst them. They all had experience living in Western countries. Their nationalities, Egyptian, Emirati, and Lebanese, as well as their expertise living abroad, would make it easy for them to obtain passports. Amir and Ziad could also speak fluent, but spotty English. To where exactly would they be going? Bin Laden and his military planner, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, had one place in mind. The United States. KSM and Bin Laden had long envisioned a terrorist attack on the United States where it hurt the most, on American soil. It would take years of preparation, and the Hamburg cell would be perfect for the job. But this was no ordinary mission. It required them to pledge loyalty to Bin Laden as well as accept this terrorist operation, the Plains Operation. The so-called Plains Operation, as it was called amongst Al-Qaeda, was originally an overly ambitious terrorist plot called the Bojinka Plot. It involved three phases, assassinating Pope John Paul II, blowing up 11 Trans-Pacific airliners bound for the United States, and crashing a bomb-laden Cessna 172 in a CIA headquarters in Virginia. This plan was drawn up by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's nephew, Ramsi Youssef, the mastermind behind the failed bombing of a Philippine Airlines 747 and the infamous 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Youssef was arrested in 1995, but the plot did not end with him. KSM approached Bin Laden with a plot, but Bin Laden struck it down as too ambitious. It was scaled down once more to crash planes into targets all over the United States, and KSM himself would take one plane's passengers hostage and then land at an airport kill every adult male passenger before landing and making a speech announcing U.S. policy all over the world. It was still far too ambitious. It was sometime around late 1999, around the time of the cell's arrival in Afghanistan, when Bin Laden gave KSM the go-ahead to begin planning and executing a significantly scaled-back version of the plot. KSM wanted to hit the World Trade Centers in New York, while Bin Laden wanted to decapitate the U.S. government by hitting the Capitol, Pentagon, and White House. This would become the plan for the 9-11 attacks as we know it today, and the Hamburg cell would be at the forefront of its execution. With the acceptance of the mission from Bin Laden, the Hamburg cell had all willfully accepted their fate, die by their hand, slaughtering thousands along with themselves. In their eyes, what they were doing was right, dying for Islam and becoming martyrs. The cell had long debated the morality of martyrdom and suicide bombings back in Hamburg to no clear answer, but suddenly, they accepted and organized their death. Suicide is strictly forbidden in Islam, but dying for the cause, in their eyes, was the highest honor. Unquestionably, the Hamburg cell believed it was their duty to defend Islam. Marwin and other cell members would take trips down to the gym or take a hasty walk around the block of Wilhelmsburg, saying they were training for the jihad. But what is so confusing is why they so willfully accepted the suicide mission. They all had so much to give up. Amir was the most radical in many ways, but had quite a long road ahead. He likely had a high-paying job as an urban planner waiting for him wherever his travels took him. To him and the others, their lives seemed tragically bleak. Jarrah is even more confusing. He was willing to give up his chance at everyday life, especially a happily ever after with ISIL. 
he was Western educated and had a wealthy family. Marwen is not as far-fetched as he embraced the idea of jihad and martyrdom, even marching around the Hamburg flat singing songs about it. His notion was heavily romanticized, and he took every avenue to love death as much as possible. One last reason I believe they took this mission is that it is deeply rooted in psychology. They were depressed out of their minds to the naked eye. They had become dissatisfied with the conveyor belt that is life, conception, education, work, and death. They all had gladly withdrawn to social isolation under the scapegoat of radical Islam. They hung out with the wrong people and grew into homicidal maniacs. Basing their willingness to die solely on religious fanaticism is abhorrently incomplete. In my mind, their depressive, suicidal, and homicidal tendencies manifested themselves in their acceptance of this maniacal mission. It gave them the purpose in life they failed to achieve back in Germany. They all accepted Bin Laden's mission and pledged allegiance to him. They were all told they needed to learn how to fly commercial airliners wherever possible and return to Germany immediately. Amir met a few times more with Bin Laden, and he emerged as the plot's ringleader due to his fanaticism and leadership qualities. And so, they all left as they had come. Marwan fell ill and returned briefly to the UAE. Like Amir did the first time, he claimed a lost passport and received it. He also applied for a U.S. visa and promptly received it. On the third day of the new year in 2000, he bought an online pilot training video. Amir and Jarrah stayed longer, but at Bin Laden's Tarnak Farms camp. They were seen smiling and laughing together in a video that surfaced in 2006, dated January 18th, 2000. Amir flew back to Hamburg on Turkish Airlines via Istanbul, and Jarrah flew back via Dubai. They both claimed lost passports once again to erase travel history to Afghanistan, and soon applied for and received U.S. visas and new passports. However, Amir took on a new persona on his visa, Muhammad Atta. Chapter 4 Dear Sir If there were one person happy to see one of the soon-to-be mass murderers, it would have had to have been Isil Sengun reuniting with Siad Jarrah. Isil had learned in November of 1999 from a friend that her boyfriend, Jarrah, might have gone to Afghanistan to train for jihad. Jarrah had told her he would return to see his family in Beirut, Lebanon. That was not the case. A Moroccan friend of Ramzi Omar, Munir al Mutasadek, called Isol to calm her down. This did not help her sanity whatsoever. But to her surprise, a letter arrived in the mailbox addressed to her in Bochum, Germany, where she was engaging in dentistry studies. The note bore Yemeni postage, but to her surprise, when she opened it, it was from Jarrah. He told her that he was okay, not to worry, and would be home soon. Sure enough, by early February, he was in the doorframe of Isil's apartment. The shadow of a once long and bushy beard descended upon his face, with a few razor ticks here and there. He was neatly dressed in slacks and a jacket for the German winter and quickly presented her with some gifts. She asked him, Where have you been? Gerard responded, Don't ask me. It's better for you. Gerard's exact whereabouts were crystal clear. He had been to Afghanistan via Pakistan but his return to Bochum, Germany to see ISIL did not go without incident. You see, there are plenty of anecdotal stories that I will get into on this podcast of the hijackers or other Al-Qaeda operatives nearly blowing the whole plot away due to some slight or very big technicalities. Simply put, 9-11 could have been easily prevented on many occasions. Time and time again, United States officials and authorities blew off these encounters as well, utterly oblivious to the terrorist threat that was growing and growing. But the story of the failure of the U.S. government to detect and prevent 9-11 is a story for another time. One such story is Jarrah's not-so-clean return trip to Germany. Jarrah flew from Karachi to Dubai in the UAE. When he went to change planes, Emirati immigration officials noticed something off about him. He had photocopied Quranic excerpts in his passport when he handed them to the official. They grew suspicious, so they searched his luggage. They found cassette tapes of fiery imams and Al-Qaeda propaganda pamphlets. His itinerary claimed he went to Pakistan for school, but this was, as Terry McDermott claims, a typical jihadi cover story to hide travel to Afghanistan. This was typical, however. Thousands of able-bodied Arab men transcended airports to travel to Pakistan to go to the jihadi camps. It was not illegal in any way. It was like a jihadi summer camp. Nonetheless, they pulled Jarrah aside. Shockingly, he was honest. He told them he went to Afghanistan and was planning to go to the United States to, quote, preach Islam and learn to fly airplanes. The Emirati officials continued their interrogation and contacted American officials who said they would track him and the Emiratis should let him go. And just like that, Jarrah continued on his journey. 
Isol and Jirak continued to lie, break up, and reconcile repeatedly. However, one day, Isol returned home to find a missed call and voicemail on the answering machine, typical of her inherently busy life. But the voicemail, as it turned out, was not for her. No. It was from a German representative of a flight school in Florida, responding to Ziad's inquiries about going to the Floridian school to learn how to fly. Jirak had once again betrayed her trust. In March of 2000, Jirak went to Munich to put down a deposit for flight lessons at the Florida Flight Training Center in Venice, Florida. She knew this was from the voicemail. She did not know who he was going with, Mohammed Atta and Marwan al-Shehi, to learn to fly commercial airliners for their assigned terrorist plot. She had never met Atta or al-Shehi or knew who they were. To her, and the way Jirak put it, they were the people Ziad was supposedly trying to escape from. She was told she couldn't meet them because it was dangerous because she was a woman. Around the same time, in March 2000, Mohammed Atta made similar inquiries into flight training. Dear sir, we are a small group of young men from different Arab countries. Now, we are living in Germany since a while for study purposes. We would like to start training for the career of airline professional pilots. In this field, we haven't yet any knowledge, but we are ready to undergo an intensive training program. Atta also sent nearly 60 similarly worded emails to other flight schools around the United States. By May of 2000, Atta, Al-Shehi, and Jarrah all had tourist visas to enter the United States for an extended time. Ramzi Omar encountered difficulties getting a visa due to his hazy immigration history, and on the pretext of the suspicion of being an economic migrant, he was rejected. He became the middleman from Al-Qaeda command to Europe, passing messages and money to Atta in the United States. Chapter 5 Sunshine State. On May 29th, 2000, Marwan al-Shehi boarded a flight from Brussels, Belgium to Newark International Airport in New Jersey. Very likely, as he peered out the window on the flight, he would have seen the silhouette of the World Trade Centers through the hazy New York City smog. He checked into New York City Courtyard Marriott, then moved to Best Western to await the arrival of his terrorist accomplice, Mohammed Atta. Atta boarded a bus to Prague on June 2nd, 2000, and boarded a Continental Airlines flight to Newark the next day on June 3rd. They took separate routes, supposedly to make them harder to track. Upon their entry into the immigration hall at Newark, their passports were scanned along with the hundreds of thousands of other passengers from foreign countries who frequented Newark. On the INS inspector screens, no hits, as they are called, popped up on either of their passports. Their passports and visas were genuine. Nobody could have guessed the mission they were about to embark on. Atta and Al-Shehi spent a few weeks together in New York until Al-Shehi received a $2,000 wire transfer from Ramzi Omar in late June. Jarrah arrived shortly thereafter at Newark on June 27, 2000, although it is unclear if he made contact with Atta or Al-Shehi. Atta purchased a new cell phone, which he used to contact a flight training academy in Norman, Oklahoma. If I were to guess, this was likely to avoid detection due to the sparsely populated state of Oklahoma. In early July, Atta and Al-Shehi skipped town and drove to Norman to inspect the Airman Flight School at the University of Oklahoma's airport. Whatever they saw, it was not up to their standards. Ziad Jarrah began taking flight lessons at the Florida Flight Training Center in the wealthy beachfront village of Venice, Florida. Atta and Al-Shehi would join Jarrah, although right next door at another flight school called Huffman Aviation. Almost every day for months, they diligently took up rigorous training from their respective flight schools, utilizing small, single-engine, four-seater Cessna 172s. The Arab, olive-skinned men of Atta and al-Shehi and Jarrah stood out defiantly amongst their predominantly white and elderly bystanders. Despite their almost alien background, they blended in seamlessly by wearing staunch business casual attire, polo shirts, and khaki slacks. Al-Shehi, though, took a more relaxed approach with unmatched checkered shirts and kept his shirt untucked. They stayed in a rented home of the school's bookkeeper, but just like Otto was when he first arrived in Hamburg, he was soon gone from there due to his sour attitude. Despite the brutal Florida summer heat and humidity, they even refused to use air conditioning. However, Jarrah became withdrawn by the day from the somewhat inseparable Atta and al-Shehi, who were seldom seen apart. Interestingly, multiple other flight students at Huffman Aviation thought that Atta and al-Shehi were Arab royalty and that Atta was a king and al-Shehi followed him along, as Atta constantly barked orders at al-Shehi. Jarrah, though, got to know many of his flight school classmates, even once going on vacation to the Bahamas with them. He bought a flashy red Mitsubishi Eclipse. He also went couch surfing with classmates because he said he had no furniture for his apartment. He likely drank alcohol at times too, one of the more extensive taboos of Islam. 
he would sometimes have rude outbursts. The flight school owner considered Jarrah as a friend to all of us. You can find pictures of Jarrah smiling with his classmates and smiling as he flew a trainer aircraft, with the people accompanying him blissfully unaware of the homicidal demeanor that lay under his skin. The more laid-back Jarrah contrasted greatly with the resolute and sternness of Atta and Al-Shehi. While Jarrah had a fancy convertible, the only sense of individualism that Atta and Al-Shehi had was the clothes they wore or the candy Al-Shehi shared from his baggie with Atta. Wire transfers from Ramzi Omar came in and were withdrawn like clockwork. At one point, they totaled more than $120,000. Flight training became habitual. Atta shopped for whatever he deemed necessary at local Sarasota, Florida Walmarts. By December 2000, they had all achieved their private pilot's license, instrument rating, and commercial airline certification. But their training came with the aggravation of the flight school owner, Rudy Deckers. Deckers grew increasingly frustrated throughout their training at Otto's behavior. He was a first-class asshole, Deckers said in a post-9-11 interview. Deckers liked Al-Shahi and Jarrah, remembering them as funny as they frequently cracked jokes with Deckers. During and after their training, the three cell members of Atta, Al-Shahi, and Jarrah paid for and practiced extensively on publicly available flight simulators, often spending long hours doing so. In December 2000, Atta and Al-Shahi began renting smaller craft at night, returning in the wee hours of the morning. They read extensively on cockpit procedures and training manuals and videos. They practiced primarily in simulators on narrow and wide-body Boeing aircraft. Iso Sangoon, Jarrah's girlfriend, visited Ziad around the same time. He was still evasive, but not hesitant to show her his skills in a flight simulator. At Christmas of 2000, the three men went their ways. Atta flew to Madrid, Al-Shahi visited Morocco to visit a friend, and Jarrah visited his family in Lebanon. Chapter 6. Encounters and Final Preparations When the Hamburg cell hijackers returned to the United States in January 2001, they began final preparations. They would need to gain expertise flying commercial airliners via simulators. They would need to be able to fly them just as long enough to travel to and hit their targets. They also needed to study airline procedures. When the seatbelt sign turned off, beverage service began, and other similar habitual airline activities. Where is the best place to sit? When is the best time to start the revolt and hijack the aircraft? It was yet to be determined where they were going, but they knew they were going to die anyway. They would also become housewarmers to 15 new men, now known as the muscle hijackers. They would be responsible for the fighting while the Hamburg pilots did the flying. They would divide up the men into hit teams. Atta and his squad of five, Al-Shehi and Jarrah also had theirs. It would be an uneven 19, with Jarrah having four men due to some unforeseen circumstances with immigration for a currently unknown 20th hijacker. It could have been Mohammed Al-Qahtani, a Saudi Arabian man refused by immigration services in 2000 when he tried to enter the Orlando airport, with Atta waiting just outside. It could have been Ramzi Omar, but as far as evidence shows, he was never going to be able to obtain a U.S. visa. It could have been Zakaras Moussaoui, a narcissistic and erratic French national chosen as a last resort to accompany them. It is just one of the many things we will never know about the plot. Their last task would be to shelter and feed the 15 muscle men to aid in the hijacking. All of them fit the profile of wannabe terrorists, able-bodied Arab men hopelessly poor with uncertain futures. Some were literal blood relatives looking to find something to do with their lives. Lastly, it was up to Atta when exactly the attacks would occur. Considering how long it would take to train the men in combat, Western lifestyle, and everything else, sometime by the end of summer 2001 was chosen. It would have been on a slow travel day, a day where delay is nearly impossible, and there is little resistance from passengers aboard their respective aircraft. And so, once again, they went their ways. Atta and Al-Shahi lived out of a discount motel in Atlanta, Georgia, renting and flying small aircraft around the city. They also began training on Boeing 737 simulators. Their families had little concern or did not even know what they were doing. Jarrah's family knew he was in the United States, going to flight school. They did not know, but had a better inclination than Atta's and Al-Shehi's families at least. Atta's family thought he was just pursuing his doctorate in the United States, or so they thought. Al-Shehi's family knew nothing, and even filed the missing persons report in Germany, where they thought he was staying. Any attempt to find him was futile. Aside from going to flight school and practicing on simulators, the Hamburg hijackers became relatively nomadic. To outsiders, they lived everyday lives and blended seamlessly, with bystanders unaware of their murderous intentions. Al-Shahi, when asked to put his permanent address on a car rental application, simply put, None. I'm wandering. There are countless recollections of perfectly ordinary American citizens 
having regular interactions with the Hamburg hijackers. We never made eye contact or anything like that. And it was usually when I was mowing the grass here and um, they would drive up, I assume from school. Um, and they'd get out of the car and of course I would wave, he'd wave back and, and uh, they'd go in the house. Sometimes uh, he'd say, hi, how you doing? And I'd say, fine, how are you? And just small talk like that. The reason I think that I remember him the most was his eyes when he would look at you as if he was looking directly through you. Atta and the other hijacker pilots of Al-Shahi and Jarrah moved away from the Gulf Coast over two months to the Atlantic coast of Florida outside of Fort Lauderdale to welcome and shelter their newly arrived jihadi musulmen. They referred to them in code as wedding guests for their wedding, the wedding being 9-11. Atta supposedly through code on email and internet party chat rooms referred to 9-11 to Ramzi bin al-Shib in Europe as a lollipop with two sticks, which can obviously be deciphered as 9-11. Some rather mundane things happened to Atta around this time. He has stopped supposedly for speeding while driving his 1989 Cherry Red Pontiac Grand Prix, where he got a citation for driving without a license. He quickly remedied this by taking the necessary steps to receive one, which he obtained soon after in May 2001. Like the Hamburg hijackers, the musclemen seamlessly blended into American society's fringes. They bought gym memberships and began training in hand-to-hand combat. Jarrah took up martial arts lessons. They used false addresses to conceal their tracks. Seven of the now 19 total men went to Virginia to get driver's licenses, supposedly the easiest way. Atta used multiple different false addresses. One such address was in Fort Lauderdale. He used 4735 Southwest 18th Street. It turns out it is just a local public branch library. In June 2001, Atta al-Shehi in Jarrah and the newly christened hijacker pilot of Hani Hanjar all traveled to Las Vegas. Atta flew from Fort Lauderdale to Boston, then connected to San Francisco and then on to Las Vegas. What they did to this day in Las Vegas is still unclear, though it is rife with speculation. It is obvious they took these long flights to study airline procedures. Las Vegas though, out of all the cities in the United States, especially for so-called radical Islamists, is quite an interesting selection. They stay in an O'Connell Lodge on South Las Vegas Boulevard an area known for the home of the Pawn Stars, Pawn Shop, as well as rife with strip clubs and prostitution. Not exactly the place where Mohammed Atta, a man who once would take lengthy detours back in Hamburg to avoid prostitutes, could be imagined staying. Nonetheless, Atta and the other hijacker pilots discussed planning for the attacks, which they likely had an idea of where they would be striking and certainly knew how. However, what remains unclear about this visit, as well as possibly six other visits, is the muscle hijackers. They likely were experiencing some sort of culture shock and cannot be trusted to stay in Florida for this extended time. Atta and the others were gone. Atta likely brought them along. Although up to speculation, the musclemen and the Hamburg hijackers probably engaged in sexual activity and drank alcohol. Two, again, taboos of Islam. Even with this, it could be seen that Atta and his henchmen are making concerted effort to hide their religious fanaticism. Their beards are shaven. They are also up to other suspicious and unknown activities. For instance, Otter rents a Chevy Malibu, and when he returns it, it has racked up well over 100 miles. He also spent an extended time at a local internet cafe. There are also unconfirmed leads that many of the muscle men gambled as well as received lap dances at strip clubs. It is just another part of documenting the terrorist movements, and to this, their multiple trips to Las Vegas and their purpose remains unclear. Was it to indeed plan the technicalities of the attacks? Was it to gain vital insight into Western life? Or was it one last hurrah before they became the brutal murderers as we know them today? Chapter 7. Zero Hour Finally, in July 2001, Otto makes his final preparations for the attacks, dubbed colloquially amongst the group as Zero Hour. Otto travels to Spain by a connection in Switzerland on a Swiss air flight from Miami. He spends some time in the airport, buying chocolate and multiple Swiss army knives. He then hopped on another Swiss air flight to Madrid, rented a car, and drove east towards the Mediterranean coast. However, he stops outside his final destination of Tarragona to pick up a familiar friend and vital Al-Qaeda asset, Ramzi Omar. During their brief time in Tarragona, Omar and Ada discuss the final preparations for the planes operation. All was set to go. They would hijack four transcontinental commercial airliners and crash them into symbols of America. Atta and Al-Shahi would comprise the first wave of their attacks in New York City, the economic home of America. Atta and his hit team would hijack their airliner and hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Al-Shehi and his men would strike soon after into the South Tower nearby. 
Jarrah and 29-year-old Saudi Hani Hanjour were comprised of the second wave in Washington, D.C., America's political and military hub. Jarrah would strike the United States Capitol building, followed by Hanjour into the Pentagon. Atta ruled out the White House because it was too hard of a target to hit with an airplane. All was set, or so they thought. Atta had run into some problems. Jarrah was causing trouble. The relationship between Jarrah, Atta, and Al-Shahi had grown strained. Jarrah never took his flight lessons at the same school as the others, nor was he ever seen hanging around them. He never went as far to get his commercial pilot's license. He had grown distant and dissatisfied, appearing hesitant. Perhaps his evasiveness to his hopeful wife in ISIL and his wealthy family in Lebanon had caught up to him. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed warned Atta to make peace with Jarrah, stating in an email that if Jarrah asks for a divorce, it will cost a lot of money. Nonetheless, despite finding a brief replacement for Jarrah, the attacks and final preparations would proceed after having made peace. Jarrah phoned Atta, calling him his boss and renewing his sense of loyalty to the plot. The 9-11 attacks at this point, even before they had started, were already the most extensive conspiracy to destroy foreign entities ever by non-state actors. The human and material costs of these attacks were expected to be enormous. If Al-Qaeda possessed any kind of the intelligence or infrastructure, say a nation like Iran, it would have been far too easy for the United States to eliminate. Its membership, including their operatives like Atta and his henchmen in the United States, amounted to merely a handful of people. This is what gave them the tactical advantage. Their scarcity made them hard to track, making it trivially easy for the attacks to coordinate and plan with military-like precision. The final date for the attacks would be set, supposedly for when Congress was back in session so there would be more victims in Washington, D.C. Through an internet chat room in August 2001, Atta messaged Ramzi Omar, the intermediary to KSM in the Middle East. The first semester commences in three weeks. There are no changes. All is well. Zero Hour, as the group called it, would be on September 11th, 2001. Ramzi Omar and other jihadis made exit preparations to flee Germany and Europe as well. Over the next few weeks, airline tickets and hotel reservations would be made. Atta and al-Shahi would travel to Boston to board American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175, respectively. Jarrah would fly United Airlines Flight 93 out of Newark, and Hanjour would depart from Washington's Dulles Airport on American Airlines Flight 77. Nothing out of the ordinary occurred. The hijackers wove their way to their respective departure destinations. Jarrah was interestingly pulled over for speeding in Maryland, going 90 miles per hour in a 65. It is unclear why he was down there, considering he and his hit team arrived in Newark on September 9th. Maybe it was to tie up loose ends with the American 77 hit team. I find this moment interesting for two reasons. Why was Jarrah in Maryland? Why was he going so fast? I think he was trying to get out of the plot by getting arrested, but did not take action. It is interesting not only for those questions, but just how close it came for the attacks to be unraveled once more. Al-Shahi stays at the Milner Hotel in Boston for his early morning departure on United 175. Atza, though, takes a different approach. Accompanied by Abdulaziz Alamari, Atta rents a Nissan Altima and goes to Portland, Maine on September 10th. Nobody outside of the plot knows why. I believe this is because Atta was not trying to put all of his eggs in one basket. If all the hijackers were in Boston at one time, it would have been easy for detection. Alamari and Atta nomadically stay around Portland, checking into a comfort inn. Atta and Alamari get Pizza Hut, feasting on a veggie lover's pizza. They are seen on ATM CCTV cameras withdrawing cash. They use the money and go shopping at a local Walmart, where they buy cheap box cutters, which they discovered could smuggle on airplanes through surveillance flights due to their small blades. Chapter 8. We have some planes. On September 11th, 2001, a perfectly normal and would-be cloudless day, the 19 men destined for destruction arise early. Draw and Newark made a phone call to Marwan al-Shaheen Boston at the ungodly hour of 5 in the morning. Jarrah follows it up with a similar clandestine call to Atta. The attacks are in place. Zero Hour is rapidly approaching. Jarrah the night before wrote one last letter to his girlfriend Isil Sengun. He wrote about how he did what he had to do and spoke of seeing her in the afterlife. He mistakenly miswrote the address. He would call her one last time before boarding United Airlines Flight 93, briefly professing his love to her. It was the last time they ever spoke. As the hands of the clock ticked away, the atmosphere of millions of Americans was growing ever closer to being shaken. At 5.40, late for their boarding for a 6 a.m. flight to Boston on Colgan Air, Atta and Alamari arrived at the Portland airport. The ticket agent, Mike Tui, warns them of additional security screenings. He grew suspicious that they fit the profile of Arab terrorist. He did not act on this out of fear of losing his job, 
due to racial profiling. Atta and Alamari continued on their way, unhampered by the poor security practices of the time. Atta and Alamari arrived just in time in Boston for their 6.45 a.m. departure on American Airlines Flight 11 to Los Angeles. Atta makes one last call to Al-Shahi to confirm everything is in place. American Airlines Flight 11 and the other three hijacked aircraft fit a similar profile. They are large transcontinental airliners filled with tens of thousands of gallons of jet fuel. The airliners were 767-200s or 757-200s, sleek and shiny missiles of 159 feet long and 156 feet wide or more that Atta and the other hijackers had familiarized themselves with incessantly. They knew exactly where to fly and how to fly well enough to reach and hit their intended targets in New York and Washington, D.C. American 11 takes off at 8 a.m. and is hijacked 15 minutes later, passing through 20,000 feet over upstate New York. For the hijackers, Flying these commercial airliners without worrying about takeoff or landing is trivially easy. Either guided by Otto himself or manipulating the autopilot, the plane follows the southeasterly course of the meandering Hudson River towards New York City. They also turn off the plane's mode C transponder, which relays altitude and airspeed information to air traffic control. All the five hijackers barricade themselves in the cockpit, never to be seen again. Minutes after the hijacking, Otto made his declaration of war. Is that American 11 trying to call? Buddy, we have some planes. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're turning to the airport. Al-Shahi and his men have also hijacked United 175 by this hour. By 8.53 a.m., Boston Air Traffic Controllers, in accordance with Air Defense Command, scrambled F-15 fighter jets to intercept American 11. It was too late. Otto had crashed American 11 with 81 passengers on board into the North Tower some seven minutes prior, killing all on board in a massive flash fire, as well as many in the building. At 9.03 a.m., after nearly avoiding a mid-air collision with another aircraft, the Al-Shehi hijacked United 175, impacted the South Tower, traveling some 550 miles per hour and descending over 8,000 feet per minute. American 77, piloted by Hani Hanjor, struck the Pentagon at 9.37 after being hijacked at 8.51. United 93, piloted by Zia Jarrah, failed to reach its target of the Capitol building. Combined with the usual delays at Newark that morning, confusingly waited 46 minutes to hijack the aircraft. His indecisiveness gave passengers time to learn what was happening on the ground. It culminated in a heroic and brave passenger revolt, resulting in Jarrah intentionally crashing the aircraft in a field in Pennsylvania. By 1028, the towers in New York had collapsed, a section of the Pentagon lay in ruins, and a 20-foot gash in the Pennsylvania countryside smoldered. American innocence had been shattered. America was at war. Thank you for listening to the Faces of Infamy, unmasking the 9-11 hijackers. The Hamburg hijackers of Atta, al-Shahi, and Jarrah, in my mind, are a puzzling bunch of the world's most maniacal and murderous creatures. When we think of evil, we think of people with a strong and foreboding presence that strikes fear in the hearts of many. But what makes the Hamburg cell members even scarier are their extraordinarily normal lives before embarking on a frightening homicidal path that wreaked havoc on our world. The sake of my research into them was to uncover the minds of terrorists. What is so attractive about death? How insane do you have to be to subscribe to such a perverted cause? However, delving deep into the minds of infamous criminal killers like Kaczynski, Bundy, Dahmer, and many others is essential to preventing their actions from ever happening again. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Nick Delahaye, and this has been the Human Factor Podcast. See you next time.